Hello, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. My name is Michael Bradley, and I am your host as we take a look at the beginnings of the world's greatest hero, Superman. This is episode two of the show, and for those who heard the first episode last week, I welcome you back. For those just joining the show, welcome, and thank you for joining us as we explore the history and development of the character of Superman via his Golden Age stories in comics and radio and eventually on film. Last episode, we talked just briefly about the pre-publication history of Superman, then took a rather deep look at Superman's debut in Action Comics number one. In that issue, we got a brief overview of Superman's origin as the sole survivor of a dying planet who, as he grew to an adult on Earth, developed an array of fantastic abilities, including speed, strength, and invulnerability. He then decided to use those abilities to help mankind. We then saw him leaping through a number of adventures, including preventing an innocent woman from being put to death and roughing up an abusive husband. We also met Superman's alter ego, nebbish Daily Star reporter Clark Kent, and watched as Superman rescued girl reporter Lois from a trio of thugs and her historic first meeting with Superman. This episode, we will be taking a look at Superman's second appearance from Action Comics number 2, which, unfortunately, as we see, is a bit of a disappointment compared to last issue's dynamic start. Before we get into that issue, I've got an email to read. This email was actually sent in mid-December, after the promo aired on Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age podcast. As of this recording, the first episode of the show hasn't been released yet, so I don't have any emails from that to read, but I wanted to read this email as the writer... Well, he asked some questions that I think will help complement what I talked about last episode as far as the mission of the show. So this letter is from Steve Rogers. He writes, Michael, just listen to the promo for your show on Superman and the Bronze Age and must say this should be a fun ride with all the goodies in Superman's early days. So you are covering the comic books and radio show? Are you also touching upon the newspaper strips, Kirk Allen serials, and Fleischer cartoons as well? as well as the scores of Superman merchandise that could be had during the 1930s and 1940s. And yeah, as I mentioned last episode, my plan is to cover the comic books, newspaper strips, radio serial, and eventually the Fleischer cartoons and movie serials. But as far as merchandise goes, no, not really. I mean, some might get mentioned in the passing, but I'm not really going to be covering it extensively. I think that would be a difficult subject matter to cover properly in a podcast. And I don't really have any uh, resource material or reference material to go by. I do have some Superman merchandise myself, but it's, it's all uh, more recent stuff. Well, most of it's more recent stuff. Um, and there was a lot of uh, obscure stuff that was released in the 30s and 40s that I just don't have any way to, to know about or talk about. So... Uh, really, this, the focus of this podcast is going to be the, uh, the stories and the evolution of the character. So for the most part, I'll be sticking with those. Steve continues, And more importantly, have you drawn your line of demarcation in terms of when the Golden Age ends? Weisinger started as editor, the debut of the George Reeves show? Well, good luck. Can't wait to hear the podcast next month. Steve Rogers. Because of how the character of Superman evolved and the way the Silver Age of comics and the DC multiverse 
sort of just came into being rather than being created at a strict moment in time. There's no official line of demarcation between the Golden and Silver Ages of Superman. Generally speaking, a lot of people consider Action Comics 241 from 1958 to be a, a loose line, but a lot of what is considered Silver Age elements were introduced before that, and a lot of Golden Age elements remained after that. As far as the show goes, you know, I have thought about it, but I haven't drawn a hard line in the sand. I've got several places in mind that would make for natural stopping points for the show, but I don't have a definitive place in mind at the moment where I plan on stopping. Uh, I hope to keep the show going for a good long time though, and there's plenty of material to cover, so it shouldn't be a problem as far as that's concerned. I really appreciate Steve writing in. I'm glad he was looking forward to the show. Everyone I've talked to in the Superman podcasting community has been really encouraging and supportive of the show. And I love the way the entire community embraces new shows and welcomes them and how, while we're all independent of one another, we all work together to really explore the entire landscape and mythology of Superman and, and his history. As far as my show goes, I hope that the first one didn't disappoint. I realize it's probably it was probably a little rough and this one probably will be too. Like I mentioned last episode, I'm, I'm new to creating podcasts. But I feel like I will uh, get better and improve as I go, so I'll hope you'll bear with me. As I said at the beginning of the show, this episode we will be taking a look at Action Comics number 2, which was released sometime around June 2nd, 1938, and sported a cover date of July 1938 and a price of 10 cents. The cover was by Leo Omelia, who was primarily a newspaper cartoonist, but worked for DC in the late 1930s, doing interior art for several stories as well as a handful of covers for action comics and detective comics in 1938. This particular cover doesn't feature Superman, which is something we'll see quite frequently in the first year and a half or so of action comics, but it's still a really great cover. I believe that it's just a stock action shot. I don't think it relates to any of the stories inside. I could be wrong on that, but that was something that wasn't uncommon on early issues of Action Comics and Detective Comics before the ongoing features really took off. The cover shows a man with a pistol in his right hand and a beautiful blonde woman in his left arm parachuting through the sky while pursued by a yellow biplane as a red biplane goes down in flames far in the background. The sky behind them is a mix of pale blue and pink and white and green hues. It's very well colored for its time, and the artwork really lends itself to the nice coloring. Normally, I'm not a fan of seeing old artwork recolored with modern-day techniques and styles, but I would really love to see what a modern-day digital colorist could do with this, because it's just a really beautiful cover. It's really one of the best non-Superman covers from these Golden Age issues of Action Comics. One criticism I would have is that the Parachute is entirely cut off because of the way the logo is backed by the black and white bars that completely obscure the top third of the cover. But that's really just a minor quibble. I mean, it's still a strong cover. And in a way, it kind of looks like the book's logo is acting as the parachute, as if the book itself is rescuing them. Am I reading too much into that? Probably. But anyway, so digging into the issue... This issue story is, of course, by Jerome Siegel and Joe Schuster, with Vin Sullivan receiving credit as editor. No title here, 
like I said last episode, most of the earliest Superman stories weren't titled at the time of publication. In reprints, this story has received a few different titles, including War in San Monte, Revolution in San Monte, and Revolution in San Monte Part 2. In a Golden Age Superman story rarity, last issue ended with a cliffhanger that continued to this issue. To recap where we left off, Daily Star reporter Clark Kent had been assigned by his editor to cover a war that had erupted in the small South American Republic of San Monte. Clark went to Washington, D.C. They didn't really explain why in that issue, but soon he was on the trail of a Senator Barrows and lobbyist Alex Greer who were conspiring to draw the United States into a war in Europe. Superman confronted Greer and tried to, well, let's just say persuade him to tell him who he was lobbying for. When we left off, Superman, with Greer in tow, had attempted to leap from the top of the U.S. Capitol building to a nearby high-rise, only to miss the building and send the pair falling towards the street. This issue story kicks off at the exact moment where we left last issue, as we find Superman and Greer plummeting downward. <laughs> the narration says they're falling 80 stories. Now, I hate to be nitpicky about these types of details, uh, especially in the Golden Age stories, but my goodness, is that crazy. The U.S. Capitol building, with the dome included, is only 289 feet high. An 80-story building would be a minimum of 800 feet high, probably much more. I mean, are there any even any buildings in D.C. that tall? The, the Washington Monument is only 555 feet. There were certainly taller buildings at the time, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, the Chrysler and Empire State Buildings in New York, but even today, buildings that tall are a rarity. So anyway, Superman and Greer fall 80 stories, apparently, with Greer screaming the entire way. The pair hit the sidewalk, Superman feet first, sending chunks of concrete flying everywhere, probably killing or at least severely injuring passers-by. We're not really told. Oh, and not to get sidetracked, but I should mention, one thing I forgot to note last episode is that the very in the very first panel of the first page of that issue is an early version of the Superman logo type, uh, no doubt drawn by Schuster. It would later be revised by Irish Knapp, and that style would go on to become as synonymous with Superman as the S-Shield. But in that issue, we saw an early version of it. And here in issue two, again in the first panel, which is actually a half-page splash, we see it again in a much larger form. So, Superman and Greer crash into the sidewalk. Superman tells Greer that they should do it again, but an obviously shaken Greer relents and tells him that the man behind the looming war is Emil Norville, a munitions magnate. Greer tells Superman where he can find Norville, and Superman leaps off, springing to the top of the Washington Monument to get his bearings before heading to face off with Norville. It's a small panel and not very detailed, but I really like the panel where Superman leaps to the top of the monument. It's a nice shot with the moon behind him and a, a bit of a wispy cloud floating through the sky. You can see the buildings below and Superman scouting the area perched atop the monument. And remember, Superman can't fly. He can only leap great distances. So him pausing to get his bearings is kind of cool to see, I think. So while Superman is making his way to Norville's estate, Greer calls Norville and warns him that the most dangerous man alive is coming after him. Norville is unconcerned, though, saying he'll take extra precautions to take care of the coming visitor. 
Five minutes later, Superman climbs through the window of Norval's study and, according to the narration, calmly tells him that he's coming with him whether he likes it or not. Quick interjection here. According to the narration, Norval's estate is in Lexington Park, which is perhaps in Maryland? I checked the map, and it's about 60 to 65 miles between there and the Washington Monument. Assuming Superman covered that distance in the five minutes mentioned, that puts Superman moving around 750 miles per hour, which is slightly below the speed of sound. Now, in fairness, that is faster than an express train, but probably not what Siegel intended. But who knows? I really hate to sound like I'm nitpicking on this stuff. It's fiction, science fiction, and, and all the fantastic stuff that implies. And here we haven't gotten any use of Superman's speed before this, so... Like I said, who knows? But between the 80 stories on the first page and now this, it's just like... Gah! So anyway, Superman comes to the window and Norval pushes the button on his desk. Several panels open around the room and armed guards come out and assault Superman with a barrage of machine gun fire. Superman is, of course, unharmed by the attack and within moments sends them flying out the window with the machine guns twisted around their necks. And Superman's pretty no-nonsense here, too. As the thugs watch Superman shrugging off the bullets, one of them screams, Good heavens! He won't die! And as Superman's going after them, he replies, Glad I can't say the same for you! Let me repeat that. Superman says, Glad I can't say the same for you. Yikes. This is clearly a Superman who has absolutely no problem busting a few heads and threatening criminals' lives where it's warranted. Superman makes quick work of the machine gun-toting thugs, and then, out of nowhere, he pulls a steel bar and demonstrates how easily he can bend it and threatens to do the same to Norval's neck if he doesn't come along. So Norval, showing he's not a complete fool, agrees to accompany Superman to the dock where Superman shows him the steamship Baronta and tells Norval the ship is due to set sail the next day for San Monte and that Norval should be on it or, quote, I'll follow you to whatever hole you hide in and tear out your cruel heart with my bare hands. Again I say, yikes. So the next day, the Baronta hoists anchor with a variety of passengers aboard. Among them are Clark Kent and Lois Lane, her last name being given here for the first time, who explains to Clark she was sent to accompany him to the war zone and send back reports with, quote, her distinctive feminine touch. Clearly, different times these are. Here, for the first time in a roundabout way, we get an explanation of why Clark went to D.C. when assigned to cover something in South America. Uh, it's not mentioned in the story, but perhaps the ship only sails from D.C., or the only ship to San Monte only sails from D.C. Maybe there's no ports in whatever city the Daily Star is in. Remember, it's not been named yet. Like I said, it's not mentioned in the dialogue or the narration, but that's the only explanation I can think of. It makes sense, but it's not stated. It just would have been nice to see a line somewhere explaining that. Um, anyway, also among the passengers on the ship are a group of thugs, the mysterious Lola Cortez, and, of course, Emil Norval, who nervously boards the ship and hurriedly holds up in his cabin. Shortly after, 
Superman surprises Norval in his cabin, but after leaving, Norval sends a thug after him and promises a fabulous reward if Superman dies. The thug and one of his cronies find Superman standing on the deck of the ship, and in a really odd scene, Superman just falls overboard. It, it says he braces himself against the, the rail of the ship, and the rail gives way, and we see Superman tumbling into the ocean. Apparently the thugs just stand there and watch him fall. They then report back to Norval, who refuses to pay them, and instead threatens to turn them into the police. Meanwhile, Superman swims through the ocean, and not only catches up to the steamship, but passes it, soon leaving it far behind. The next night, the, the Baronta docks, and as Norval exits the ship, he's attacked by the thugs that he double-crossed. Suddenly, Superman appears, making quick work of the thugs, with a round of fisticuffs, and saving Norval. Norval asks why Superman saved him, and Superman replies that he has plans for him. He wants him to join the San Monte army, or else. And I question the likelihood of someone being able to simply go to another country and join their military, but okay, maybe things were different in the 30s. They weren't, but whatever. Later, Norval paces his hotel room, trying to devise a plan. He doesn't want to join the army, but feels it's suicide to resist Superman. Suddenly, the light bulb goes off, and he decides to enlist in the army, then make an escape at the first opportunity. <sighs> no. I suppose this is a bit more logical than showing up in a random country and joining the military, but still. I mean, at least here, it's just a plan of someone scared of what will happen, so you can understand some faulty logic. I don't know, folks. I just summarize. So anyway, Norval enlists in the San Monte Army, only to find Superman waiting on him in a San Monte Army uniform. Superman tells him that he's enlisted as well in order to keep an eye on him. And I have to wonder exactly what name Superman used when he enlisted. Clark Kent? That and Superman are the only names he's been given so far. I can't imagine enlisting as Private Superman would get him very far, but he's not wearing glasses, so Kent doesn't seem likely. I don't know, maybe he just swiped a uniform and is hoping no one will notice? That seems pretty unlikely unless his commanding officers are all completely inept, but who knows. Orders come down that their detachment is getting moved to the front. Well, I say orders come down because that's what Private Superman tells the guy behind a desk. It isn't explained who the guy is, but Private Superman is saluting, so I presume it's a superior officer of some type. Of course, that begs the question of why orders would go through Private Superman and not his superior. But with the orders, the narration tells us that the detachment moves towards the battle line. Because apparently in this war, there's just a line where the fighting starts. You know, like an inbounds line on a basketball court or something, I guess? <sighs> These stories do get better, folks, I promise. Norval asks Private Superman if he's trying to get them both killed. And Private Superman says he can't understand why people manufacture munitions when it means thousands will die. Norval replies, Men are cheap. Munitions, expensive. <laughs> this particular panel is... Uh, is a crowd, you know, like an establishing shot, but I'm sure that Norval was twirling his mustache when he said that. 
So as this is happening, their column is shelled, sending Norval scrambling for his life and Private Superman commenting on his change of attitude when it's his own life at stake. Inexplicably, we cut to a scene a short while later when the company has set up camp for the night. Superman, now back in his dress blues, sprints away from the camp, racing to the enemy camp, where the general and one of his top officers are boasting to one another how impenetrable their lines are. Suddenly, Superman pops into the tent, tells them to watch the birdie as he takes their photo, before once again disappearing as the officers scream for the guards. He's apparently not caught because the next panel cuts to later that evening when Clark Kent is mailing a package to the Evening News in Cleveland, Ohio, who prints the picture scoop. That's right, Daily Star reporter Clark Kent mailed his scoops into the Cleveland Evening News. <sighs> that detail aside, I actually commend Schuster for the art here, because when you see the photo that the paper printed, it's actually drawn like it should be. Uh, when Superman took... In the, in the previous panel, when Superman comes into the tent, the point of view is from behind the generals looking over their shoulder at Superman. But when you see the finished photo in the paper, you see the two men flipped around as from Superman's point of view. So that's a nice little detail that was often overlooked in the Golden Age. Meanwhile, in the fil I mean subplot, Lois Lane and Lola Cortez, remember them? They were on the boat too meet at the hotel where they are both registered. Introductions are made, and Lois introduces herself as a reporter and Lola as a wealthy traveler, when suddenly two army officers burst into the hotel on, quote, official business. Panicked, Lola dashes off to the elevator, runs to Lois's room, and who knows how she knew which room was Lois's, and hides a document in a drawer. The army officers explain to the hotel clerk that an important document has been stolen, and the clerk gives them permission to search the guest rooms. The officers, of course, find the document Lola planted in Lois's room, and Lois is placed under arrest. Cut to the next panel where Lois is meeting with an attorney? No. Being arraigned? No. Facing a jury? No. She's being sentenced to be executed at dawn. For espionage. Justice is swift in San Monte. And really it's more swift than you might imagine because in the next panels we find Lois being led to her execution. <laughs> Thankfully, Private Superman, yes, he's back in a soldier's uniform again, overhears the guards talking about the execution and speeds off. Oh, and what happened to Lola Cortez, the one who was actually in possession of the mystery document? Well, we don't know. We never see her again. She appears in exactly four panels of the book and is never seen again after hiding the document in Lois's room. Thankfully, that's quickly forgotten about, though, because what happens next is actually the best part of the book. Not that there's too much to compare it to, as we've seen, but it's a pretty good action scene. The firing squad is lined up and ready to shoot. The commanding officer gives the command. Ready. 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 Aim. Aim. Fire. Suddenly, Superman leaps over the wall into the camp. Down, down, into the hail of gunfire. He covers Lois's body with his own as the barrage of bullets bounce off him harmlessly. Superman sweeps Lois into his arms and leaps over the wall. Lois is saved. Whew. Such a great sequence. I, I love the bit of dialogue here, too. 
Superman grabs Lois and leaps over the wall as the guards shout, Stop! You can't do this! It's impossible! And Superman replies, Thanks for letting me know! <laughs> the Golden Age Superman, as we'll see, has a definite sense of humor about him. It's not slapstick and it's not constantly quipping like Spider-Man would come to be known to do, but Siegel often wrote him with a definite sense of humor like these one-liners. And I absolutely love that. It's a careful line to balance because you don't want it falling into camp or just one quip after another, but it really helps to ground the concept. And this is something that future versions of Superman wouldn't really hang on to. Don't get me wrong, Weisinger's Silver Age Superman and the Bronze Age Superman are very fun characters, or character, with creative stories, but you don't see Superman cracking these one-off jokes so much and even less with the post-crisis Superman. They know how to have a good time, but you don't see them reveling in their power like Superman does. And when I say reveling in their power, I don't mean in a uh, sadistic or macho way. Yeah, as we have seen, Superman has no problem busting some heads for criminals, but it's not this vain, phony machismo. I, I really love that this Superman of the Golden Age has a sense of humor about him, like I said, it definitely helps to ground the concept, which at the time was pretty out there, when he's not taking himself too seriously. So Superman saves Lois, and then there's this weird one-page interlude where Lois is nowhere to be found, but Superman drops... Well, the narration says Superman drops to the ground into the midst of a torturer's inquisition. But the art, it looks... There's a guy tied to a tree, and a couple other guys, also tied up, standing nearby. Then there's a fourth guy, just pointing at the first, you know, like, jabbing his finger into his chest. That's not exactly waterboarding here, guys. I mean, it's rough treatment, maybe, but torture? <laughs> it's just a weird sequence, and I don't really understand Superman's context, or why these guys are torturing, and you can't actually see the air quotes, unfortunately, but torturing someone out there in the middle of nowhere, or where Lois went. But in any event, Superman grabs the torturer, tosses him javelin-style past a row of trees, frees the captives, is thanked, and then we cut to later, when Superman deposits Lois near the Baronta and tells her to go home. And in this panel, it's night, or at least dusk, I mean, you can see the moon behind them, and it's reflecting off the water, the sky is dark, and all that. And now, remember, Lois's execution was scheduled for dawn. So, between her rescue and now, there's been an entire day. So, what happened? Did Superman drop Lois off somewhere in the middle of a war zone, then take care of the torture situation, then go back? Did Superman hide Lois in the bushes while he was dealing with the torturers? And if so, what did they do with the rest of the day? Just leap around San Monte singing, Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, kid out of school holding hands with a god I'm a fool 
Like so many things in this particular story, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, oh, not the song. The song's awesome. The weird timing just doesn't make sense. I don't know if this was just filler, or if there was more to it that got cut out, you know, bad editing, or what. The, the artwork is really poor as well. There's very little detail in the figures, no real backgrounds to speak of. It just looks and feels really rushed. Thankfully, the entire sequence is totally inconsequential to the plot, so we're just going to move right on. So anyway, Superman saves Lois from being executed by Firing Squad, then drops her off by the steamship and tells her to go back to the States. And Lois is replying? Well, you'd think it'd be something along the lines of, I can't believe it's you again, or you're amazing, or... What about my assignment? Or, what about Clark Kent? Or, thank God you saved me from being killed and dumped into an anonymous mass grave in a war-torn foreign country after being found guilty without trial for something I didn't do. But no. She just asks Superman when she'll see him again. Superman replies with a rather creepy, who knows, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps never. And that's the last we see of Lois. No. Seriously. We assume Lois got on the boat and headed back to the States. Given Superman's reply, he could have dumped her body into the ocean. It really isn't said. I say we just go with our foreknowledge of future stories here and say that she returned home safely, okay? Okay. But <laughs> all kidding aside, it is kind of funny because Lois doesn't appear again until issue 5. So here we have this oh-so-creepy scene between Superman and Lois, and then we don't see Lois again, and it's just... Uh, it's just creepy, in, in, in not a good way. So anyway, after sending Lois on her merry way, Superman speeds off to deal with Norval. Do you remember Norval? When we last saw our favorite Mahatma of Munitions, he was wigging out after going through an attack on the front lines of a war as part of a foreign army that he was coerced into joining by Superman. When Superman returns, he finds the detachment defending itself via anti-aircraft guns from an attack by a single enemy aircraft. Why did the enemy choose to attack with just one aircraft? Like so many things in this story, it isn't explained. Regardless, this is pretty easy to overlook because once again it leads to another really cool action sequence. And not to get too off track, but I keep wanting to call this pilot Enemy Ace because he sort of looks like Hans Von Hammer, even though that character won't be created for another 25 years or so. Man, wouldn't an Enemy Ace Superman team-up have made for a great issue of DC Comics Presents? Carrie Bates did that really excellent uh, Superman Sergeant Rock team-up, uh, issue 10, I think. But then again, pretty much anything with Superman fighting Nazis is a is okay in my book. Uh, we'll get some of that here in this show. It, it'll be a while, but we will get it, I promise. Anyway, as the narration tells us, Superman leaps to the attack. For the first time in all history, a man battles an airplane single-handed. Totally awesome. Superman leaps into the air, and the plane charges at him, guns a-blazing. 
As the two collide, the plane's propellers are pulverized against Superman's invulnerable chest, sending the plane down in flames. Norval, who witnessed the spectacular scene from the ground, is delighted, thinking Superman has been killed. But not so fast. Norval turns around and is surprised to see Superman, still alive and completely unharmed, landing behind him. Norval falls to his knees and begs Superman to let him return to the States. Superman agrees, but demands that Norval quit manufacturing munitions. Norval agrees, and as he boards the steamship, swears to himself that he'll never produce anything more dangerous than a firecracker again. And you'd think that'd be the end of the story, right? But wait, Superman has one more thing to take care of before his work in San Monte is complete. Unfortunately, it's not covering the story he was sent to cover, but maybe taking a single photo and sending it to another paper is good enough. Who knows? A short while later, we find Superman emerging from a tent with the army's commander under his arm. He speeds away to the enemy camp and also kidnaps the opposing army's commanding officer. He then speeds off, carrying both men, eventually setting them down and telling them that he's decided to end the war by having the two leaders fight it out for themselves. The two generals say they're not angry at one another, and neither can even remember why their armies were battling in the first place. Superman tells them they've obviously only been fighting to promote the sale of weapons. The two generals shake hands, and everyone lives happily ever after. For about a year until World War II breaks out. But for now, there's puppies, kisses, rainbows, and hugs. Aww. One last panel shows Clark Kent back at the offices of the Daily St or Cleveland Evening News. His editor tells them there's been no Superman sighting since Clark's been gone. Clark replies, somehow, Chief, I have a hunch he'll make his appearance again soon. Hopefully in a much better story, maybe? <sighs> Sorry, folks. Maybe I'm being too hard here. This isn't a bad story. I mean, we got a couple great action scenes, some brief Superman-Lois interaction. But it's far from a good story, too. It just seems sloppy. There's an inordinate amount of things that aren't explained or don't make sense. The whole scene with the quote-unquote torturers is just stuck in the middle of the story. And even the ending with the army officers seems rather tacked on. Then there's the minor details that I hate to harp on, like the 80 stories and the distance to Norval's estate or the Cleveland Evening News. Ugh. Okay, maybe not that last one. But these things, they add up and, and just make it sloppy. And I realize that this story is in the infancy of the character, but I'm not sure how a detail like the name of the paper could be missed by Siegel, Schuster, Sullivan, and anyone else who might have seen the story before it went to print. I mean, that's a pretty major gaffe. The art, too, is just, it doesn't seem very up to par. Uh, like the story, a lot of the art just seems sloppy. It looks fairly rushed, and there's a lot of places where it lacks proper detail. Superman's S is missing in several panels. Many places it looks like it was just put on by the colorist. A lot of backgrounds are non-existent. Figures are roughly drawn. Some pages and panels look okay, but for every one that looks okay, there's another that looks hurried. I'm not quite sure what happened. But it's just a real big disappointment after what I felt was such a dynamic first issue. On a more positive note, the coloring here is fairly decent. Whoever did the coloring did a good job of making it very vivid and bright and colorful. 
the page where Norval and Private Superman are sent to the front lines and come under the uh, attack is especially nice. There's lots of reds and oranges and, and darker uh, blacks and stuff. It, it, it's a really nice page. Superman's costume in this issue is basically the same as we saw in the first issue. The boots look a bit more streamlined, but it's, it's difficult to tell because of the art. There's no panels where you can specifically see the laces up to up the shins like you could in the first issue. But like I said, the art, it just, it's hard to tell. At the bottom of the last page, there's an ad that takes up about a third of the page. And it says, Attention All-American Youth. No doubt you all admire Superman's amazing strength and endurance. Well, now you too can possess superb physiques and sinews of steel. And what it is, is it's an ad that's promoing a new feature that's going to begin next issue. Uh, it's titled, Acquiring Super Strength. Build a body of iron. Possess the stamina of a gladiator. The endurance of a Spartan. Astound friends with miraculous feats of strength. And uh, we'll talk more about this feature next issue. It's, it's uh, one of those um, quaint little pieces of uh, nostalgia from, from the Golden Age. And the ad has... Uh, a mock cover of Action Comics, and then a, an image of Superman without a shirt on, or maybe it was just drawn wrong, who knows, but uh, he's flexing his muscles, and it says, only in Action Comics will you find this valuable course. Don't miss an issue. This story has been reprinted several times. Uh, the reprints include Superman Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 1, as well as the Superman in the 40s trade paperback. It was also reprinted in oversized tabloid format in Famous First Edition C61. It was not reprinted in the Superman in Action Comics Archives series, though it was recapped in the first volume. The Superman stories from the first four issues of Action Comics, the one we covered last week, this week's, and the ones we'll cover in the next two weeks, were all reprinted in Superman number one in 1939. So when doing the Archive editions, DC opted to reprint the latter three of those in the Superman Archives rather than the Action Comics Archives. They are, however, reprinted in chronological order in the Superman Chronicles series, which is a more recent and more affordable reprint option. Rounding out this issue of Action Comics were mostly the same features as the first issue. Those included Scoop Scanlon, Pet Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Chuck Dawson, and Zatara. Also in this issue was a six-page Inspector Donald and Bobby story by Leo E. Omelia, who I talked about earlier in the episode, the, the same artist that did the cover. Other than Action Comics number two, DC had three other titles with the July 1938 cover date. It'll just be those four titles for several months' publishing time. I talked quite a bit about each of the other titles and their history last episode, but I thought I'd take just a quick look at this month's selections and give the highlights. Before I do so, I want to give one correction on the information that I gave in this segment last episode. There I mentioned that the Marjorie Daw feature in Detective Comics number 16 was by Bob Kane. However, after recording that episode, I found a notation on comics.org that stated that, according to Martin Pascoe, that feature was actually done by Stan Ashmeyer. The note also says that the story bears Kane's signature. I haven't seen the story, and I, I tried to research it, but couldn't find any information on 
why if Stan Ashmeyer did it, it would bear Kane's signature, if they worked on a character together or what. But if anyone has more information on that, please send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and I'll be sure to share that on a future episode. Of the comics with the July 1938 cover date, one of these was More Fun Comics number 33. And this issue, like the last, contained a Radio Squad story by Siegel and Schuster. There was no Dr. Occult story in this issue. I think I neglected to mention it last episode, but Dr. Occult's story in issue number 32 was the last Dr. Occult story of the Golden Age. That character would languish in limbo until being resurrected by Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron in issue 49 of that series. If I failed to mention that last episode, I really apologize. Also out was Detective Comics number 17 with a really great Craig Flessel cover. That issue again contained uh, Bart Reagan Spy and Slam Bradley stories by Siegel and Schuster. And finally, there was New Adventure Comics number 28, which had a Federal Men's story by Siegel and Schuster. So again, we see a lot of work from Jerry and Joe. And really, this will continue until about mid-1939, at which point things start tapering off a bit for Schuster first and later for Siegel. Well, folks, I think that about does it for this episode. Um, next time, we will be taking a look at Action Comics number 3, and I hope you'll rejoin me for that. I just reread that story today, the, the Superman story from that issue, and it's, uh, it's not quite as much of a disappointment as this issue's was. Once more, I thank you very much for joining me for this episode. And again, I want to thank Steve Rogers for writing in. Even though Steve's email came before I'd released an episode, in fact, I'm recording this before the first episode has been released as well, I'd love to get some feedback on the show now that a couple have been out. Uh, feel free to send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Let me know what you like, what you didn't like, your thoughts on the issue, the episode, etc. As well as any additions or corrections or further comments you might have. You can also head on over to greatcrypton.com where you can leave comments and see show notes, including images and additional commentary and links relating to the issues that I've talked about. You can subscribe to the show in two ways. First, via the RSS feed at greatcrypton.com, and the show is also available on iTunes. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, available at fortressofbailytude.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, and the, uh, the network serves as a hub to many great Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts, so be sure to check that out when you have time. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.